Thursday night was a big night. I don't know if it was for you like it was for me. Baseball is back. Yes, that's Rylan. Rylan keeps clapping for this. Yes. <laughs> so baseball is back. Uh, opening, this is opening day weekend. It started Thursday night. And, uh, and yesterday, for example, uh, the Braves won. I just, just, we just need to, I think, acknowledge that. I think everyone on the phone line can celebrate this. They're very excited. Now, in baseball, and we've seen it, I've already seen it uh, over these last few days watching uh, as baseball has returned, you're going to have players that are coming up into the big leagues for the first time. They're going to be having their first at bat in the major leagues, and they're going to get their first hit. You know what happens when a, a, a baseball player gets their first hit in the major leagues? They make sure, even while they're on first or second or third base, wherever they might be, they want the ball. Because they want to save the ball as a sign of their first hit. And it's just a very exciting moment for them. And that has already happened uh, this season, where you have some players uh, getting their first hit and saving that ball to commemorate the moment. Now, the only reason that I want to even talk about first is because of what we're going to do in the passage. Now, obviously, I wanted to say something about baseball. Very excited about that. But firsts are really important. In today's passage, we're going to see Mark record a first in the life of Jesus. We've never seen what happens to Jesus happen like it does in this passage. And so it's an important moment for us to pay attention to because anytime firsts happen, you pay attention. And it's going to be the same for our passage today. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14. We're picking up right after the Lord's Supper. Mark 14 starting with verse 26. Mark there records this. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the, shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. The point of death, he said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and praise so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and he prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. 
Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. And with him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near, him, near drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. And when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Would you imagine that last sentence? If we were watching a movie, I imagine the camera zooming in on that garment as a symbol of the loneliness Jesus now knows. Everyone has deserted him. The only thing left? A garment on the ground. Jesus has been abandoned. And this is the first time in the gospel that Mark has recorded where we see Jesus abandoned. Even in the wilderness, when tempted by the Satan, the angels ministered to him. This is the first time Jesus is abandoned. And so Mark is going to put that forward and he's going to tell the story of Jesus being abandoned with some structure. I want you to take a look at how Mark puts it together. In the first part of the story, verses 27 through 31, he predicts the abandonment. He tells Peter, you're going to, you're going to disown me. Then in the next section, verses 32 through 42, the abandonment begins. Especially with James, Peter, and John... They're there in the garden, Jesus wanting them to keep watch. And what do they do? They fall asleep three times. Although they may want to stay awake and be watchful, praying alongside of Jesus, they fall asleep. They begin the process of leaving Jesus. And then in verse 40, verses 43 through 41, uh, 51, that abandonment is complete. Everyone deserts Jesus. And so Mark structures the passage to build to a garment laying on the ground. The final scene of this passage. Everyone has left him. First time. First time in the gospel. Now, this is really everyone's story. This is the human story. This is the story of how people abandon God. Ultimately, this story is going to run all the way to the cross when Jesus alone hangs for the sins of the world. Now, if we just had to walk through the story as it tells the human story, we might make look at it this way. Just seeing how these characters in the story represent how people throughout history have abandoned their God. Here are some of the ways that people miss the mark. They miss it for different reasons. So if we just took Peter, for example, in the passage, sometimes people miss the mark. That is, they abandon God in this certain way because... They trust themselves more than anyone else, even Jesus. Or maybe people miss the mark because they're like the disciples in the garden. They want to obey, but they fall to the temptations. We all probably carry some of that story in us. And we probably all know this last one, people like Judas. Maybe we were Judas. 
They miss the mark because they openly reject Jesus. That's one way. That's one way that we can miss the mark. And if we just took this and we just summarized it, we could do a lot worse than picking up a passage from the letter written to the Romans where Paul really describes how everyone has missed the mark. The story we see in this passage in Mark, how everyone leaves Jesus, that's the human story. And Paul puts together some Old Testament passages to tell that story so that we all understand we've all left our God. He tells it this way. He writes it this way. Romans 3, 10 through 12, and then we'll pick up that famous verse 23 to close off the passage. Paul writes this. There is no one righteous, not even one. And there's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. And there's no one who does good, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. To sin is literally to miss the mark. And every human has missed the mark. And so as we read the story of the disciples running away, every person deserting him, and one openly betraying him, we need to know that's our story. So we come into the passage feeling the weight of what it might mean to abandon Jesus. And that is going to highlight, is going to highlight the key to the whole story. Because along the way, as Mark threads the line of abandonment, from prediction to beginning to completion, there's another storyline running underneath. What Mark is doing is what he's done throughout his gospel. He's throwing one story up against another one so that we see a contrast. And in the contrast is what Mark needs us to see. So as we watch everyone abandon Jesus, there's another story up against it. Let's summarize it this way. I want you to see this is the story. While the disciples abandon him, Jesus remains faithful. He remains faithful to his Father in heaven and to the mission to rescue humans from the kingdom of darkness. So if we put that image up again of how the passage is structured as we watch in that front part of, that abandonment is predicted and then we see abandonment beginning and then we see it completed, along the way we see one steady thread. It's the one story Mark wants us to see as it lays in contrast to everyone deserting. There's one person who remains steady, Jesus. So in that front section, as he predicts everyone leaving him, particularly Peter, he also says in that passage, when I rise, which tells us he sees an end to the story. He knows that his Father in heaven will be faithful, so he too will be faithful. Jesus didn't give up. He knows, he knows that the ending will come out good. And so Jesus will remain faithful. So as he predicts the abandonment, he stays faithful. Then, when he's in the garden, and as they are falling asleep, what is Jesus doing? What's the story that lays up against their sleeping? It's Jesus on the ground praying, not my will, but yours. So even as his sorrow, his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, he remains faithful. And yet as the disciples are overwhelmed with sleepiness, they sleep. And so Mark wants us to see very clearly that the faithfulness of Jesus is highlighted. Then the last part of the story, we see Judas 
openly betraying Jesus, and then all the disciples flee with the final scene of a garment laying on the ground as a naked young man runs away. You know who stays steady? Jesus. Jesus is the one in the middle of all of that who says, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. He doesn't give up. He stays the course. And so in the passage, these two threads run the whole scene. Jesus being the champion as the faithful one. Now that theme's going to run all the way to the cross, but the question I want to ask is what's underneath it? Why? Why at a moment of deep sorrow does Jesus remain faithful? How does this God in flesh lay on the ground, soul overwhelmed with sorrow, how does he say the words, not my will, but yours be done? How does he not give up? I think the answer is woven into the gospel just a couple chapters before. Mark often does this. He will lay crumbs for us where he will fully develop them later on in a scene or a story or a passage. And that's what is happening right here. You see, Jesus has already told us what, the, what, what is the most important thing in the universe. It just so happens that that most important thing is the very thing he's living out as he lays in the garden, begging that the cup would pass him, but then praying, not my will, but your will. What's that thing? What's the most important thing that he's playing out in this moment in the garden, in this scene where he remains faithful? Well, that most important thing is the thing he said back in chapter 12. Remember when someone asked him a question about what the most important commandment was? And there in his answer, he tells us what he's all about, what he, Jesus, is all about. This is what Jesus said, Mark chapter 12, 29 through 31. Jesus said this, the most important one, that's the most important commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. And then, just before he ever said those words, he had tipped us off that that might be the direction this story was going when he said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, remember when he said this? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. What's driving his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane? It is love. It is love. If we had to summarize it, I'd just say it this way. Love is why Jesus went to the cross. Love is what motivated him to stay faithful, even as everyone abandoned him and his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow. When Jesus said what the most important thing was, he knew that that would ultimately mean giving up his life for many. This wasn't just some abstract idea somewhere up in the clouds that you just love God. No, Jesus comes full, saturated with love. And the way that worked out literally on the ground is that he loved his father so much he would not forsake the mission he was sent on. And he wasn't going to give up on his neighbor. His neighbor being me and you. He would die for the sake of the world. And he would remain faithful. You see, that, that passage full of theological weight, meat, 
back in Mark chapter 12, which comes after that weighty passage, Mark 10, 45, where he would give up his life, or he would serve, not just be served. All of that's getting worked out in real life, in his body, as he is being abandoned by everyone. And what Mark highlights here is the faithfulness of Jesus, and it is fueled by love. And when the early Christians told the story of his crucifixion, they had a lot of ways of talking about it. They rarely ever, rarely ever, gave a formula. They rarely ever said things like, you're a guilty sinner who needs to be in the presence of a holy God. How do you come into the presence of a holy God if you're full of guilt? Well, you need a guilt offering, and that offering has to be made. Rarely ever is a nice, neat formula given to describe what Jesus did on the cross. They tell a very simple story. They tell the story of someone who loved someone else and gave their life for them. That's what they do. They don't put it into some complex algebraic formula. They tell a story of love. Look at how Paul says it in Romans 5. A real famous passage here, Romans 5, 6-8. Paul writes this. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's it. It's that simple. He loves you. And he died for you. Now, how all that works out, I don't think we fully understand how all that works out. Then... Just so we understand that this wasn't like some abstract idea for Paul way up here. Like this actually meant something in his body. How he lived and it got real personal for him. Here's what he writes in Galatians 2.20. Paul wrote this. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's how Paul does it. This man of deep learning and theological weight simply says of the crucifixion, he gave his life for me. And that changed the way he lived in his real body with fingers and toes and a tongue. It changed him. And then in that other famous John 3.16 passage, we see it one more time. 1 John, 1 John 3.16, first part of that verse. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. There are a lot of examples of love. But in the scriptures, they bring it to a point. If you want to know what love is, you look at Jesus, who laid down his life for us. That's how the New Testament does this. So what's fueling the faithfulness of Jesus not to give up, even as everything in him wants to give up? It's love. And maybe it would be better to say, he really likes you. Maybe that'd be a good way of saying it. Sometimes we use love way too much. Like, I love the Braves, remember? Okay. Okay, we've got George telling me who he likes. We don't want to talk about that. We want to talk about the Braves and how I love the Braves. That's what we want to talk about. <laughs> but God likes you. He really wants to spend time with you. This is how the New Testament boils that down. And that's what's underneath fueling this passage in Mark 14. It's what's going to get us to the cross. So what application would this have for us? Well, let's go real big and pay attention to the parentheses. 
So here's the big view. Jesus loves us, and he is still faithful. That's the application, that Jesus loves us, and he's still faithful. That's what it looks like today. Now, the parentheses is where it matters. This is important to know if you're like any of the disciples in the passage. So let's take a view if you and I feel or have a sense that we might be like one of them. Because then it gets on the ground. And it might not be a bad idea to remember that you are loved. So, so think about Peter. Peter's a guy who comes with, some, comes with some arrogance. He's got it all figured out. And there's no way Jesus is going to tell him what to do or what he will do. He's got it figured out. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. You ever feel like you've yeah, got it all figured out? Well, if COVID-19 has taught us anything, it's that we're not in, in, in as much control as we think we are. And there are a lot of things going on with COVID-19. I don't even think we know the half of what might be going on. But I do know this, I don't have nearly as much control as I thought I did. That's not a bad thing to realize. And in the middle of thinking you might have it all together, it is a good thing to remember that when you hit your wall, Jesus still loves you. And maybe it might be Jesus coming from the other angle. I love you. I need you to know you're not always in control. You ever seen that in the face of a parent? A parent that needs to talk pretty sternly to their child? Out of love? I love you. You're not going to get your way. But that's still love. But love will carry you here. Even when you don't have it together. You're still love. And then what about the disciples in the garden? I think this one really hits home for a lot of us. Where you really want to do the right thing? Like you, you have every intention to do the right thing, and then what happens? You do the opposite. You don't do the thing you know you should do. And you struggle. You struggle, you are facing temptations, and you don't know what to do. Now I'm just going to say, I'm just going to note just one more passage here that I think just has some relevance. I think it has a lot of application. It actually was written as an application passage. When the writer of Hebrews explored all these dimensions of Jesus, this is in the letter to the Hebrews, at one point that author of Hebrews describes the empathy Jesus has for us to, to know that he also struggled. And so he's there for you even when you struggle. Kind of like the disciples in the garden. Here's what the Hebrew writer writes. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Why would you need grace or mercy in a time of need? Because you're probably going to mess up. And when you mess up, there comes Jesus saying, I understand. I love you. Come on. Now, what is interesting to me is if you listen to some preachers, you would think that Jesus is pretty mean. You would think that you just mess up one time and off to hell with you. You know, if that's our view of Jesus, we have a better view of sports coaches than we do of Jesus. What does any good coach do? They watch their players mess up. They might give them a stern talking to, but at the end, they get them up and tell them to go try again. You get back out there. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep it. And a great coach is a great motivator. There is no way that a sports coach 
is more encouraging, more motivating, or more loving than Jesus. And so let's remember that just because we might mess up once or twice or a million times, that God's coming along and saying, sorry, you only had one shot. That's not what love looks like. So be encouraged. You may fall, but you get right back up because Jesus loves you. And then what about Judas? And I just want to make a point. I don't know if there's any Judases in this room or on the phone line right now. I'm going to go ahead and say there probably aren't. But you might have a Judas in your life. And I don't mean someone that's betraying you, but maybe someone that has walked away from Jesus. A grandchild, an adult child, a close friend, someone. You don't give up on your Judas. Jesus never gave up on Judas. He let Judas go his way. But you keep praying for your Judas. Never, ever, because Jesus is not giving up. He will let them do what they want. But he will woo. And in time, they may come back. Do not give up on a Judas. You keep praying for them. Now, there's that last character in the story we really haven't talked much about as he might relate to us. And that is Jesus. I don't know about you, but I know that I have felt like Jesus. I know that I have prayed for something, and it hasn't happened. I imagine as we started our service talking about farmers and rain, I imagine there are some farmers across the country in our church, or definitely in our region, that are praying for rain, and when it doesn't come, they're feeling this, they're feeling this emotion of disappointment, of concern, the weight of sorrow. What do you do when you pray for something to happen and it doesn't? This is where we might just follow with Jesus and pray, your will, not mine, be done. I don't know how all that works out. But I know if Jesus, as his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow, could pray, not my will, but your will be done, then that's not a bad place for us to land in the middle of trouble. Just because we pray doesn't mean that the genie is going to do what we want. He is no genie in a bottle. But he's good. And he's faithful. And he loves you. So you keep asking and in the end, you say, and not my will, but your will be done. That's a great place to be. But just know, if you've ever felt that, Jesus did too. You're not alone. Now let's take this to a next step. And this next step is going to use our imagination. We're literally going to move into our imagination, and I'll close it in prayer. And so we're going to take this next step, which is to imagine sitting with Jesus. And then I want you to imagine he's going to look into your eyes, and he's going to say something to you. And I literally want you to do that with me. Now, I understand you may not want to do this. That's fine. I'm going to do it. So I'm just going to invite you to come along. Just close your eyes and imagine. But you imagine that you are literally sitting with Jesus. Now, you can make Jesus look however you want him to look. He can be plump, skinny, beard, no beard, whatever you want. Just imagine Jesus. Imagine you're sitting somewhere. I don't know where you're sitting. You'd be sitting right where you are. Imagine you're on the beach. Maybe you're in the woods next to a stream. Doesn't matter. Put yourself there and put Jesus there right next to you. Now imagine that you've hit a, part, a point in your conversation where he looks at you. I mean, we'll lock eyes with him. And imagine Jesus, as he looks at you, say, I love you. It's not romantic. It's not sentimental. 
It's solid. And then imagine him saying something else to you. I don't know what that might be, but it's something you need to hear. Maybe it's, it's going to be okay. Maybe you need to hear, now you stop doing that. Maybe it's, now forgive. I don't know what he's going to tell you. But imagine Jesus with you. He looks you in the eyes and he says, I love you. Father, as we imagine that, would the Holy Spirit stir up what we need to know? And would you take that message and help it form us this week? We know you will carry us. We thank you for the faithfulness of Jesus in the middle of sorrow. Teach us in your kingdom to walk the same way. And may you grow joy into places we haven't yet known it. We give it now to you in the power of his name, through the Spirit, and together we say,